Hey, I'm Steve Folland. Welcome to a brand new season of Being Freelance. And this episode is brought to you by my course, How to Get Started Being Freelance. Just because you want to work for yourself doesn't mean you have to figure it all out by yourself. If you're new to being freelance or you know someone who is, please come join me. The course and all the details are at beingfreelance.com. But right now, let's find out what it's like being freelance. For email strategist and conversion copywriter, Liz Painter. Probably when I started out in copywriting, I was charging ludicrously low prices, but you gradually realise that actually you need to be paid a fair salary for this. I think you do have to practice saying your pricing out loud if you want to push it higher and really get the value. I now track my time religiously on every project and then I review it at the end and I'm aiming to hit a specific hourly rate and obviously the client's never going to know what that hourly rate is but it just gives me a guide. You are doing it because you love it but you also do need to get paid. Find the person who is at the very top of your industry and follow them. I think it's really important. I think it makes a huge difference. So yeah, you always want to be looking out for the next person that can teach you something. Yes, so there is Liz, the first guest of a new season of Being Freelance here in January 2021. I hope you are doing okay if you're listening to this as it goes out. Well, I hope you're doing okay if you listen to it at some point in the future. I don't wish you ill. I just mean, given the state of the world right now, if you're listening to it as it goes out, I hope you're fine. And um, yes, yes, very excited for all of the guests that are ahead of us over the next few weeks. Plenty of great stories to come. Also excited because this is it. I've finally launched my course it's called how to get started being freelance you can find details at beingfreelance.com it's all of all of the things that i wish i had learned when i started being freelance uh, that i had to figure out for myself but also figure out by either making the mistakes or chatting to other people remember i've been chatting to over 200 guests every week for the past six years it's actually six years this month since i started this podcast and um all of that has informed what i teach in the course i think it's a really good grounding for setting you up the right way if you're new to being freelance or if you've been freelance for the last few months or you know six to twelve months if you've got that nagging feeling that surely am i actually doing everything the right way i could be doing it then check it out at beingfreelance.com all the usual stuff is going on as well in the community with the live Q&As the non-employee of the week awards uh, the book club if you're into reading business books come and join us in there for the book club that was a lot of fun that continues for another year and the mastermind the cookie collective if you want uh, support from other freelancers to kind of move your business forward then that is there for you too along with plenty of other stuff but yeah I'm really looking forward to the year ahead. Right now, let's crack on, shall we? Hear from our very first guest for this season, and that is freelance email strategist and conversion copywriter, Liz Painter. Hey, Liz. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? I'm well. Thanks for doing this. As ever, how about we get started hearing how you got started being freelance? Yeah, so I started out as a journalist on a newspaper all the way back in, I think it was about 2003 that I was doing that. And I was there for a couple of years and it was a great grounding in journalism. So I was writing um, news stories and, you know, I had my little patch and if anything happened, I was out there covering it. And then the features writer went off sick and I ended up covering some of her work. And a lot of what she did actually was advertorial type stuff where you'd go out and you'd interview business owners about their business and then you'd write up a nice little feature about them 
that was essentially an ad, but written as journalism. And um, I really, really enjoyed that. And that was probably my first brush with copywriting. At the same sort of time, I was helping my husband set up his freelance photography business. And that was taking up my weekends. I was working quite long hours. and I was also dabbling in a bit of freelance journalism, which my editor knew about. And it just got to be quite a lot. Um, I found I was way too busy. And I made the decision to leave that job and to go freelance, kind of partially working in my husband's business and, and partially setting up my own freelance journalism business. But what I found was that as my husband was winning photography clients and shooting commercial photography, people would say to him, oh, you know, we got these pictures for the website, but actually we don't have any words. Do you know anyone that can write the website for us? And he put them in touch with me. And that's how I ended up being a freelance copywriter. And, I, you know, I, I did love the journalism side of it and I did both for a bit, but ultimately copywriting won out. And that's how I ended up as a freelance copywriter. Wow. And so what year or how long ago was that that you sort of made the move into copywriting? And um, Yeah, so I was probably doing both through sort of 2005 to 2008. And then 2008, I was like, right, I'm going to give my business a name. I called it Comma Comma. Um, it was that time when everyone was doing kind of quirky names, you know, that didn't really have a massive connection to the business. So that's my excuse. But um, I love it anyway. And um, 2008, I mean, just as the recession hit, really. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> um, and yeah, that was that. I decided it was copywriting all the way. I wasn't going to do journalism anymore. And um, I'm still here. What made you choose to go with a company name rather than, you know, just being Liz Painter copywriter? So... One of my kind of mentors at the time was Andy Maslin. The, the way I, I really got my grounding in copywriting was to basically read every book that Andy Maslin had written. Um, he's more of a novelist now, but at the time he was very well known in, in the direct response copywriting world. And he really gave me my grounding. And one of the things he recommended was setting yourself up to look like a bigger business than you were, almost like an agency, even if it was just you. Partly because, so this was back in the day, you've got to remember before social media was a way to win business. So a lot of the time you'd be on the phone with people and it, it kind of sounds a bit, well, he felt, and I think he's right, that, you know, if you ring up and you say, oh, it's, it's Liz Painter, can you put me through to so-and-so? And the secretary says, Liz Painter from where? And you say, oh, Liz Painter from Liz Painter. <laughs> um, <laughs> it doesn't sound all that professional. So it was just a way to add that layer of professionalism of yeah, it's Liz Painter from comma, comma. Um, I see. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that, you maybe don't need that so much now. I think there's much more of an argument for building a personal brand. But at the time when it was the way to get in touch with people really was post and phone, um, it did just make sense. So obviously, your first clients were coming via your husband's business. But mm -hmm. how did you go about getting your clients in? Was it just that, or or did you find other ways? No, I got out on the networking circuit. I think at the time my kids were quite little, so I would try and find networking events that were more in the evening. So I would be kind of looking after them in the day. And then um, I would go to evening networking events um, when there was when my husband was at home to look after the kids. So it was quite that was quite a good way to to break in and just chat to people and it just kind of evolved from building relationships with people I found going to the same networking events over and over again was quite a good way to build those relationships and then get recommended to other people um, rather than dipping in and out and, and obviously we can't do that at the moment um, but I think you can achieve something similar with online networking now. So you were doing that and you were positioning yourself as a copywriter so you'd you would write people's websites? 
Yeah, I, to be honest, I was very generalist at that point. So I would write websites, I was writing brochure copy, really anything that anyone asked me to do. I think I, I was even doing press releases, which I haven't done for years, but um, because it, it did overlap with, with where I was at that point, having just left journalism. Mm. Um, so really anything that any business asked me to write, I would do it. I wasn't, I didn't discriminate. And I think that was actually a mistake. Um, since then, I've, I've niched down into email and funnel copy. But at the time, I guess a lot of people start out this way, where you're almost scared to turn business down. So you just take anything that comes in the door. Because obviously at the beginning I said email strategist and conversion copywriter. Mm -hmm. So at what point did you make that step to narrow it down? Yeah, so I think probably by about 2016, 2017, I'd already narrowed down into really only doing online stuff. I wasn't writing brochures anymore. I was doing websites, emails, funnels, um, funnels being kind of, you know, your your lead magnet and your ads um, and your email copy and landing pages as well. And then I think it was around about 2017, I was chatting to a client actually who was saying, look, you know, you're clearly really passionate about email. You're really very good at it. I, I just got some really good results for her with a campaign we'd run. Um, she'd had like an 80% lift in sales. You know, she said, have you not thought about, you know, just doing email? Um, and I had thought about it, but I, I had wondered whether it was a, you know, a good positioning strategy or not. But from that point, that really made me think, do you know what? I think she's actually, she's right. And I did start to focus in. I didn't immediately cut out the other work, but I started to focus in on email a bit more. And then probably over the last two or three years, I've really, really niched down into email. So I will write the other stuff to go alongside emails. And and obviously if I'm writing an email campaign and I'm sending someone to a website that isn't very good, that's not a great idea. So I will sometimes work on people's website messaging as well alongside their emails. But I don't tend to take like an entire website project so much anymore. It, it is very email focused and it, it was quite gradual. I didn't, it didn't seem like a sensible strategy to go right from now on. I'm only ever doing email. Like I kind of gradually moved into that space. Did you notice as you sort of niched down that it made it easier to sort of sell what you were doing and to price what you were doing? Like, What was the response in, inside your business? Yeah, it's so much easier. You know, when you get on um, a call with a prospect, it's so easy to give examples. What I tend to do as part of my process now is I'll give people like rough ballpark figures when we first get on the call, because that way you don't waste loads of time talking to someone who's not got the budget um, for the project. So I can easily say, oh, you know, I wrote this seven email sequence for someone and it was this price. And it just gives them that reference point. And it just makes it everything a lot easier in your business. And yes, even, you know, when you're posting on social media, all of the marketing activities you do for your business, they can all be focused in on that. Um, it definitely simplifies things. How did you find pricing? Yeah, so pricing has evolved as well. I think I vividly remember, actually. So, I, you know, I said that I'd learned a lot from Andy Maslin's books. And I think it would have been maybe around 2014. I was at a copywriter conference in London and he was one of the speakers and he delivered a workshop on pricing, which I went to. And one of the things we talked about at the time was blog posts, which was something I used to do. I don't do a lot of that anymore. Um, obviously, I still write them for my own business. And I think at the time I was charging something like £150 per blog post. And Andy Maslin was charging more like 400 And then he got us all to stand up and practice saying, yes, it's £400 per post. Um, this kind of funny little exercise. But it was actually really hard because that felt like a massive leap at the time. I mean, that wouldn't be very much now, but, you know, it was kind of seven years ago or something like that, six, seven years ago. And um, 
yeah, I think you do have to practice saying your pricing out loud if you want to push it higher and really get the value. The other thing that's really useful or has been useful for me as an exercise is I now track my time religiously on every project. So I use Toggle, which is just a free app just to, to track how long you're spending on each project. And then I review it at the end and I'm aiming to hit a specific hourly rate. And obviously the client's never going to know what that hourly rate is, but it just gives me a guide. And, you know, when I probably when I start, started out in copywriting, I was charging ludicrously low prices, but you gradually realize that actually you need to be paid a fair salary for this. You are doing it because you love it, but you also do need to get paid. And it's all those shifts of kind of professionalizing your business and putting systems in place. It all weaves into the pricing side of things and helps you charge what you should be charging. And also being open with other copywriters. I have copywriter friends now that, you know, will say, oh, actually, I'm thinking of pricing this project like this. Does that sound about right to you? Um, and just having that reference point is really useful. Yeah. And when I was looking at your your website, I noticed and like this this kind of works more for for certain things and I th I think certainly as a conversion copywriter uh, it it makes sense like you have very specific kind of like these are the sort of differences I've been making to clients because obviously email conversion copywriter I'm I guess it makes it easy to get to the metrics it's like a proof that you you're good at what you do do you have to make that part of your terms and conditions if you like like you you want to be able to see the metrics you you want to be able to quote the metrics yes um that is a really good point actually steve i think i didn't push for that early enough in my career and it has made a huge difference because if you position it from the outset that you know when you're first talking to a client you know i want to see how you're doing now so that we can compare it with how you're doing after i've worked on your copy they buy into it from the beginning then and they're happy to share. Whereas I think when I was starting out, I was a bit too timid and I wouldn't kind of demand to see their metrics. Whereas now it's just part of my process and I, I probably wouldn't want to work on something if I couldn't see that I'm having some kind of impact because that's where I get the buzz. That's the kick, you know, that I've had this amazing impact on their business that I've got them good results and it there's not quite the same pull for me if I don't get to see that and it's not as good for them because they don't know that they've had return on investment you know which is crucial otherwise why would they want to work with you again if they haven't seen results so yeah I think it's a really important piece of the puzzle and that reminds me of when we spoke to Jonathan Stark in the last season when um, we were chatting about more value-based pricing because as a software developer, he was able to see the difference that his work was making and you can see that difference. So did that affect your pricing? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's much easier to say to someone, yeah, this is going to cost £10,000 if they know they're going to make £100,000, you know? I mean, that, I just pulled those figures out of the air, but um, it, it just makes it a lot easier if you can show the value you're going to deliver. You know, this is all the magic you do for your clients. How do you work that magic for yourself? Oh, that's a really good question. So I do have an email list. I probably haven't focused on it as much as I should in terms of growing it. And that's something I want to look at over the next few months. But I do win clients through my email list. And I think that is just because they can see what I, I talk about, what I do in my emails. Um, they can see how I work. They can see that I write well. And it's just a way to build a relationship. Um, which, you know, a lot of the time it is just about having a certain number of points of contact with someone, isn't it? And demonstrating the value that you deliver before they, they can buy into what you do. And I think an email 
an email list where you're emailing weekly or fortnightly or, or perhaps more often depending on the industry you're in it really does do that it does give you those multiple points of contact where you build a relationship I mean I, I I'm aware of people on my list who've been there for a couple of years and then they'll come on board as a client you know it's taken that long for them to think do you know what I really should sort out my email marketing <laughs> <laughs> what kind of stuff do you share in your email so I tend to share stuff that I'm learning because I'm I'm always reading and learning and listening to stuff and taking courses. I'll share things that I've done for clients. Um, I will share, I share quite a lot of stuff about productivity and mindset, actually, because I'm quite into all of that. You know, so I, I could be talking about copy one week and meditation the next week. You know, it's quite, it's quite a mix. Interesting. So you, so you don't feel hemmed in, but you should just talk about email strategy. You talk about whatever is interesting you to help your business and therefore might help their business and in doing so they get to know you as well yeah how do you find managing clients do you know what it's got a lot easier since i put really good processes in place i think that's something i resisted for quite a long time in my business because you know you hear about businesses that want to scale and they obviously need all the right processes in place but i think as an individual freelancer you're maybe thinking oh, do I really need systems and processes to quite the same extent but actually once I bit the bullet and started working on that stuff it made a massive difference because you just you just have a system that you work through with every client and so they feel really comfortable and really confident that you're you know what you're doing and they know what's going to happen next and you're taking them on a journey through the project um, they know they're not just going to end up being left for weeks and not knowing what's going on and there's always you've always got the next thing booked in so you know I'll start a project and we'll have the kickoff call and then we'll book um, the messaging call so they know I'm off working on the research and I'm going to come back with the messaging report and then there's a call booked in for that and then there'll be the copy delivery call booked in so that you know they've got a real sense of, of movement and momentum on the project and it just gives them a feeling that they can just relax and get on with what they should be doing and not worry about managing a freelancer so I think it's really important and so like if we look at like your business now where do clients find you now or rather how do you find clients I guess it works both ways yeah so I still get a lot of referrals so um could be old clients could be people that I've met networking that come back to me and I also always ask clients at the end of a project is there anyone that you know that I could do this for? So, you know, especially if we're we're kind of on that results call where we're talking through how it's gone and it's all gone really well, particularly then is a good time to ask if they know anyone else that I could help. And I've had some really great clients come through that way. Um, I mean, I remember one particular client who was a business coach. I asked her if she could suggest anyone and she gave me something like, five names of different people that she thought I could help and then one of those people also gave me about five names that he thought I could help and I was like wow how many clients am I going to get out of this one client so that was brilliant because some people are just connectors like that you know they'll just they really want to help you find more clients because they know you'll do a good job but that's not the norm um, but often I'll get maybe one referral that way and then also I'm starting to do quite a bit more on LinkedIn and I've had a couple of clients come in through LinkedIn. Um, so that's quite effective as well. But generally it has just been networking and, and people kind of pushing other people my way. When you say you're doing more on LinkedIn, what are you doing? I'm adding people. So probably a, an ideal client for me is someone who's a founder or a chief marketing officer. So I've been adding people from software companies, e-commerce companies in those positions 
and also founders of some smaller businesses because it's it's not I quite like having a mix of of size of client they have their own kind of advantages and pros and cons of of working with them but I I like that mix so I'll add people like that and then I'm going through and searching for what they're posting because what I've found is if you just look at your feed you don't always get to see the stuff that is useful to you so if you do a search for the people you want to be connecting with more just your first connections and then search what they've been posting say in the last day or the last week and then comment on their posts and and what happens is not just them but most CMOs for example will be connected to lots of other CMOs so if you post something useful or intelligent or just adding to the conversation on one of their posts not only will they see it, but other people in their network will see it. And I've, I've won clients that way. Oh, it's good when it works. Yeah. Um. So, so it's not so much about putting your own content on there, but rather searching out for other people. I think so, yeah. I mean, I do post my own content and I think that's important because I think you get more reach. The algorithm likes you better if you post. So more people will see stuff. But yeah, you don't just have to post. It's definitely as much about the networking side of it as it is about posting. Now, I was obviously checking out your website and it's very nice. And and intriguingly, you know, g- given that we spoke earlier about, you know, presenting yourself as being bigger than you are, despite still having the name Comma Comma, it's very much about Liz Painter. Mm-hmm. How has that website changed over time? Yeah, so that was a really conscious decision, actually, that um, because there was a point in my career where I did have freelancers working for me and I was outsourcing stuff as well as writing copy myself. And it was a conscious decision to contract and go back to it's just me. And sometimes I might bring in another copywriter if I need additional expertise. There's a lot of people out there saying, oh, you know, you shouldn't position yourself as just you. You should try and make yourself look bigger. And do you know what? It is just me and I'm very open and very honest and very transparent. And I don't want to hide that fact. And actually, it's I think it's a bonus that you know you're getting me with my kind of ridiculous number of years of experience. You know, let's not count them up. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, you are getting me and, and all of that experience and knowledge that I've built up over many years. And so why would I try and hide that and, and try and make out I'm a bigger business than I am? And it, when I rewrote the website, I did just make that conscious decision that, yeah, I'm just going to position myself as it's me. And I might I might change that decision in the future. You know, maybe when my kids leave home, I'll want to grow the business bigger and I'll want to take people on. But at this point in my life, it's at the perfect size for me. Mm. How old are they now, by the way? Um, they are 10 and 12. Uh-huh. So you did actually sort of like start working with other people, though, at one point. What made you do that? And then what made you go back? Yeah, that just evolved, really, just because I had more work than I could handle. And I used a freelancer. She was brilliant, actually, really reliable to write blogs for me. This was a few years ago now. And it was a really interesting experience because I found I just became really, really busy because I was writing copy, but I was also editing the copy that my freelancers had written and I didn't find that I was making enough profit to justify spending all that time on the editing and managing people. And probably at the time, I wasn't as good at the systems and processes side of things. So I maybe wasn't managing it as well as I could have done. And I think I probably wasn't charging enough. So the margins weren't quite there. Hmm. Um, and it it was really 
a good learning experience, but it was very challenging. And I just made the decision that actually it wasn't the right way to go. Um, and I was better off focusing on building my own my own strengths and my own copywriting skills and getting really good so that I could put my prices up that way and make more profit rather than trying to spread myself too thin managing people. And so did that mean you had to get comfortable with turning work away? Yeah, and actually it's been brilliant because I what I have done is grown my copywriting network so that now if a project comes in that isn't a good fit for me, I can quickly say, oh, you know, I can't do that, but I know someone who'd be brilliant for that and pass it on. And that feels really good because, I, you know, I'm helping share out the work with my colleagues and I'm fine with that. I don't feel like I need to make a fee or anything. I'm I'm just happy to share the love, you know, spread the work out. And I actually had a conversation with another copywriter the other day where she said that um, another copywriter friend that we both know had passed some work on to her and she described the company. And I said, oh, was it such and such a company? And she said, oh, yeah. And, she said, and I said, oh, I passed that on to her originally. <laughs> so it's kind of she's now got too much work on and she's passed it on. Um, and that makes me happy. So it sounds like you've you've found quite a community of fellow copywriters. Yeah. And I think that is so important because you know, you can discuss things like pricing, you can um, ask for help on stuff when you're struggling. You know, that's, that's been a big learn for me. I was, I was kind of raised to be really independent and self-contained. And I wasn't very good at asking for help. But actually, it's okay to ask for help. Did you know? <laughs> Newsflash, it's okay to ask for help. If you're struggling with something, you can go to another copywriter and say, oh, I'm really not sure how to tackle this. What would you do? Um, and likewise, if you've got copywriters in your network who aren't as experienced as you, they can come to you and ask you for help. And that's allowed. And it's I think that's been a really big lesson for me, really useful lesson. And of those online communities? A mixture, actually. So I've got a little network of kind of Birmingham Midlands copywriters um, that I've met in real life, or, you know, kind of organically. But also, yeah, some online communities. So another great one is the Copywriter Club which is there's like a massive Facebook group and also a page, um, slightly smaller Facebook group community. It's based in the States, but it's it's global. Um, and that's a brilliant community. I recommend that. And then also another community I'm in is 10X Freelance Copywriter, which is run by Joanna Weeb and Amy Posner. And that's also brilliant. You know, you can always get some great advice in that community. Mm. You mentioned the fact that you love to learn and like constantly develop yourself. Yeah, books, courses. I've been on a couple of masterminds as well. I'm really big into kind of self-development books and um, just continuous improvement, really. I have, um, there's a book, The Slight Edge, which I read every year. And if you imagine kind of an upward trending curve, Oh, I think we're all a bit sick of those kind of things at the moment, aren't we? But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> take COVID out of the equation. Um, an, an upward trending curve of what you're doing in your life, how your business is going. And what most people do, they'll see some success and then they'll almost take their foot off the gas and they'll kind of dip. And that's why we get this kind of feast and famine thing in freelancing, because we're not keeping our foot on the gas. And what the slight edge suggests is that instead of, you know, easing off and kind of dipping every time you see some success, you just keep going and keep doing those consistent behaviours like, you know, the posting on LinkedIn or whatever it is. But it, it can apply to any element of life. So, you know, the meditating every day or running three times a week, whatever it is, keep doing it. And that curve will keep going up without all the little dips. And very few people will actually do that. And if you can keep doing that, you're putting yourself in that top 5% of people. And, and you're going to see, you know, kind of exponential success. 
a bit like you do when you know when you put money in the bank and not now with the interest rates but you know <laughs> you put money maybe not in a bank somewhere where it's going to grow um you know you, you, that cumulative thing mm. where suddenly your streets ahead of where you would have been if you'd been doing the traditional kind of up and down curve so it, it's that kind of attitude and I, I so I'm always seeking out books that will help me improve in different areas of my life how do you manage your time like split across all of these things I think at the moment I don't manage it brilliantly being honest I don't have very good balance at the moment and I think that is a symptom of you know the the kind of the climate we're in at the moment of of feeling like I want to make hay while the sun shines and and work really hard and almost stockpile because we don't know what's on the horizon and so I work a lot of hours at the moment and I want I do want to improve that I want to get more balance but generally I I, there are some things I do well and I think manage, my, managing my time in terms of blocks of time is something that works really well for me so almost taking a break before you're too tired to keep going so working in kind of blocks of 90 minutes for example and then maybe taking a break may, maybe a block of two hours and then you know a, an hour break which it seems counterintuitive but I find I get more done if I can work really solidly for a block of time and then take quite a long break but also building in things like a daily walk, meditation, all those things that you probably think you don't have time for, but that actually make you more productive when it comes down to it. So what does a day look like for you then based around, you know, let's presume kids are actually in school for a start. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. What, what what does it look like for you? How, how do you fit it all in? So I do tend to mix it up a bit, actually. So there's not really one typical day. I and mean, there's a couple of structures that work well for me. I will regularly get up at, say, 5.30 and do like a huge block of work before anyone's up. And then my husband will get the kids ready and I'll uh, I'll finish that block at like 8.30 and then I'll walk my youngest to school. We live about a mile from his school and there's this lovely off-road walk that you can do along the canal, um, which kind of really sets you up for the day. So Mm. I'll go and do that and then I'll come back. I might have like a half-hour break and then I'll start again. But I love that because it makes me feel like I've done half a day's work before the day's even started it's like you're ahead of the game and then on that sort of a day I'll, I'll kind of I'll work a full day and then I'll finish like five or six and that, but that'll be when I've, I've got a quite an intense project on usually that I need to get you know some headway with whereas a more relaxed day might be where I you know I get up at a sensible time <laughs> like 7am <laughs> you know get the kids ready and then come back and start at like nine um, and, and just you know work till I'll have a lunch break, work till about six, stop for a couple of hours, hang out with the kids, dinner, all the rest of it, and then back to work for a couple of hours before bed, which, I mean, it's not the healthiest, but it is what, being honest, it is what I'm doing at the moment. But Mm. what I find that means is that because I've done a solid amount of work in the week, I, I feel okay about taking most of the weekend off. I find if I work shorter days, I just end up working at the weekend. So that's not great either. But I mean, you can tell from what I'm saying that I'm still working at achieving balance. <laughs> yeah. It does sound perhaps it's good that you're both, you know, you and your husband are both freelance. Yes, I think it's really helpful. But it, it does mean you don't always have a typical day because my day will change based on his day. So if he's on a, a shoot where he has to leave really early in the morning, my, then my day is, is influenced by that because then I, I can't do my full mm. block of work early in the morning. But it's, it's okay. We've got used to it over time and it works well. Now, I always do this thing where I ask for three facts about yourself 
to make two true, one a lie, and let me figure out the lie. What do you have for me, Liz? Right. So the first one is when I was a journalist, I landed an interview with Piers Morgan. Okay. I once had to climb out of a first floor bathroom window so I wouldn't miss a flight. <laughs> and um, the director of tourism for a region in the Black Forest shouted at me for being late in front of a museum full of people. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, the level of detail in that last one, like, you know. <laughs> so this was, I'm trying to think exactly when it was. It was probably the mid noughties. It was my husband and I, we were doing a, a piece for um, an outdoor magazine. So it was a travel journalism piece. He was doing photography. I was doing the, the words. And so we had this itinerary of stuff and it was a really packed itinerary that the, the tourism board had set up. And we had a hire car. And this, this was like the really early days of sat-nav. Um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't on your phone. Like it was like a CD that you had to put into the car. And we weren't used to it because we just had an old car back in the UK. We'd never used sat nav. And it also just wasn't as good as it is today. And there were two places called Freiburg. And we looked at this itinerary and there was no kind of indication of which Freiburg we should be going to. So we just picked one at random. Like what else could we do? We had no map. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was the wrong Freiburg. Um, so we'd missed a meeting with the mayor um, at the right Freiburg. It was, I think they were only about 20 minutes apart, but we were, you know, we were a good like half an hour late in the end. We had trouble parking as well. And so, yeah, so, so literally we got there and, and she shouted at us, you are lit. <laughs> um, and yeah, my husband um, used some choice swear words at that point. You interviewed Piers Morgan? Yeah, so this was back when I was a newspaper journalist and he had just, I think he'd kind of just left the mirror. He was editor of the mirror, wasn't he? And he'd just left under a cloud and um, he'd actually bought the, the trade paper for our industry, the Press Gazette. And so I think that's, he was in town, something related to that at the Starbridge News where I worked. And yeah, I got to interview him and it ended up being this big thing on page three talking about like the future of the newspaper industry and local journalism and that kind of thing so yeah that was a bit of a coup so that was before he sort of became a big figure in tv yeah, he wasn't like, like i mean he was not well known because he'd been an editor of a national newspaper but he wasn't yeah he wasn't yeah. like the the pundit the figure that and he what did there. you make of Piers? he was actually really nice and really polite obviously i you know he hadn't been on all these shows at that point so i wasn't kind of judging him from that point of view but he was you mm. know well spoken polite a nice young man okay right and then you i really want this one to be true though so you had to climb out of a bathroom window at an airport it wasn't at an airport no so i um oh my my parents live um quite near they, they live in northwest london but quite near heathrow airport so i always use their house as a hotel when i'm flying from heathrow <laughs> treat this place like a hotel i know um <laughs> and um i was staying there and they were actually on holiday in australia i needed to leave at like 6 a.m i had this flight to catch and you know when you've literally like i i allowed myself like half an hour to get ready i was like i'll have a quick shower and then i'm gonna gonna go and get on the tube to heathrow and um just absent-mindedly, even though there was no one in the house, I went into the bathroom and I locked the door because you have to shut the door to have enough room to get into the shower. Anyway, so I locked the door, I had my shower, went to open the bathroom door and the lock had completely jammed, like completely jammed. Like I spent about 15 minutes trying to get out of this bathroom and I didn't have my phone with me. I didn't have a watch. So I had no idea how long I'd been in there. And I was thinking, oh my God, I'm going to miss my flight to San Francisco. And I was going to um, a copywriting retreat 
with Joanna Weave, who's like my ultimate mentor. Um, and I was like, there's no way I'm missing this flight. Um, so yeah, I had to make a decision to um, put my dressing gown on and climb out of the bathroom window and then literally lower myself off the kitchen roof and then run down the street to my mum's friend and wake her up to give me the spare key to get back into the house <laughs> and then get my stuff and go to the airport. So yeah, so I turned up to the airport with like scratches on my hands and stuff from where I'd landed. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Yeah. Because at one point there, I was thinking, this doesn't make sense, because how did you get back into the house? Because you clearly didn't go to the airport in just a dressing gown. But no, now didn't. it does make sense. <laughs> that just feels so true. But like, <laughs> I don't know why you would make up being shouted at by the German, which makes me feel like Piers Morgan is the lie. And yet equally, and I don't want you to take offence, that almost feels like the disappointing lie, which <laughs> makes me feel like it's probably one of the other more exotic ones. But there was so much detail in it. Oh, man. <sighs> now, OK, I think Piers Morgan is true, which means you made up. I think he made up the bathroom window. That's the lie. Oh God! I wish I'd made that one up. No, the uh, you you were nearly there. The lie was the Piers Morgan one. That was the lie. Ah. <laughs> Do you know what? I don't mind losing when the two stories which were actually true are brilliant. That's oh. um, <laughs> good. That makes it a little bit sweeter. Oh, it feels good to win. Anyway, I've always liked to win. <laughs> You've said the word mentor a couple of times, so. Are mentors important to you and are they like one-on-one -on -one type mentors or do you use that term as in like just people that you look up to? Um, yeah, I think I use it as just people I look up to. Um, I I worked with a coach, I think it was back in 2017. One of the things he said was find the person who is at the very top of your industry and follow them. And that's how I found Joanna Weeb. She, um, she was actually recommended to me by a client as someone worth paying attention to. And... Yeah, she. I ended up joining her mastermind, and she. Um, yeah, she's definitely been one of the most important mentors to me. But there have been others as well. I think it's really important because what what I found as as I was growing my business was I was learning a lot from other business owners, but they weren't in my space, so they didn't have specific things to teach me about how to to get ahead in copywriting. Whereas once you follow someone who's in the exact same industry industry as you. Um, just the advice you get is so much more specific and so much more useful. Um, I think it makes a huge difference. So have you sort of stayed part of like long term part of groups as in like the mastermind, for example, or is it a thing you do for a period? Yeah, I think both. So that mastermind um, was a six month mastermind that included the retreat um, that was at Lake Tahoe, uh, the one that I arrived with uh, scratched hands. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so um that was the six month thing and then I've also worked for Joanna Weaves agency as well done quite a bit of copywriting work for them so I've been able to learn from her in, in kind of different ways and I'm still in her kind of it's a lower level mastermind I guess you'd call it 10xfc and then yeah so, so I think some mentors come and go and some mentors stay with you for quite a while and then sometimes you're ready to move on and learn from other people um, I think it's got to be a mix of both, really. And, I, you know, I think the same with courses. You know, you, you take a course and it might seem amazing and, 
and transformational at the time but then you know six months a year two years later you're taking courses you know that are at a different level because those courses are no longer you know they they're far behind where you are now because if you're on that continuous growth curve you know things move quite fast so yeah I you always want to be looking out for the next person that can teach you something it's interesting like all of these different ways that you learn for example or take things on board that's only part of it isn't it turning it into action is another like how do you make sure that you do that part of it oh yeah what a good question um I think the implementation side of it is really, really important. I think there's, um, it's quite easy to read a book or take a course and get really excited about where it's taking you and then not actually do the work. I found having people that hold me accountable is absolutely critical. And in fact, we met through someone who is helping me at the moment, Prana Malik, and she can take a fair bit of credit for helping me get my website rewritten and actually launched. Um, she introduced me to my website designer as well. And I have another copywriter friend who's done a lot to hold me accountable to finishing stuff. We we meet every week um, just for 15 minutes on Zoom and we tell each other, right, this is what I want to achieve this week. And you, we hold each other accountable in Slack. And that has been really, really important. And we also ask each other how advice and and help and just give each other a nudge um, when we're not doing the stuff we should be doing and then I have another copywriter friend who is like my LinkedIn accountability buddy who so if I don't post by about 5 6 p.m today she'll be on my case in slack (laughs) saying come on where's your LinkedIn post you know and vice versa and those kind of things if you take them seriously, are so helpful, certainly for me. I don't know that everyone needs that. Um, there's other stuff that I can just get done without accountability. You know, I'm I'm a runner. I don't need someone to tell me to get out the door. I just love it and I'll go, um, you know, three times a week, no problem, and I'm always training for something. But certainly with work, I think it's really easy to focus on the client work, and especially when you love what you do and kind of to the detriment of the work for your own business. And what I need is someone to say to me, come on, you have to carve out that time to do the work for your own business. And that's where I need the accountability. So yeah, I think I'm, I'm pretty driven, but it just is helpful having someone saying, come on, you're going to do that today. Yeah, no, I love that. Out of interest, you know, like there might be people listening who are thinking, oh, that sounds like a really good thing, but I don't know how I would find somebody to like, how did you, like, did you uh, approach those two, for example, with that idea or like how how did you end up in that situation I think both of them actually approached me but there are definitely systems for getting this set up so certainly in those communities that I've already mentioned um there's the copywriter underground which is part of the copywriter club and then 10xfc you know they actually have like an accountability buddy system where you can put your hand up and say I need someone to hold me accountable and they will introduce you to someone who's maybe at the same sort of level as you in copywriting And I don't know, you could probably find that in just the open group, the Copywriter Club Facebook group. I'm sure if you put your hand up and said, do you know what, I'm struggling to get X, Y and Z done. Does anyone else need to do that as well? Um, Because it is helpful when you're both working on something similar, like with the LinkedIn thing. Um, I'm sure you could stick your hand up in there. It's Or just somebody locally that you know who maybe has the same level of drive as you. I think it's it does have to be someone who's driven. It can't be someone who's flaky because that's just not going to work. It's just going to be annoying. You need someone who's actually committed to something as well so that you can bounce off each other. 
Um, Tim Ferriss stuff is good for how to hold yourself accountable. I think he's got a blog post on it or it might be a podcast. Um, I remember reading about um, something that he had talked about, an app where like it's a carrot stick type app where I think you reward yourself if you hit your goals and maybe it gives money to a charity you hate or something like that if you don't achieve your goal as a way to hold yourself <laughs> accountable. I can't remember what it's called. Um, but it, yeah, it's so like an app that will give a hundred quid to, you know, an organization wow. you really don't get on board with if you don't do the thing you said you were going to do. Um, and that wouldn't work for me, I don't think. But um, but yeah, different strokes for different folks. <laughs> oh, I know what I meant to, you've just reminded me. One thing I, I wanted to ask, like, because uh, we're before we wrap up, was there was something on your website. Um, I think it was like, save my emails, save the world. Like, tell me about that. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, when I first started my business, I had quite an eco angle to it. And um, a really good friend at the time said to me, oh, like, no one cares about that. They just care whether you're a good copywriter. You should take that off your website. I mean, this was a long, long time ago. And I kind of followed that advice. And then actually, we've come full circle now, haven't we? And people, it's cool to care about the planet again. Um, And I just, when I was redoing my website, I wanted to think about how I could do more than what I'm already doing. Um, You know, I love helping businesses. I get a real kick out of seeing them get great results. But I wanted another layer to it of, of, you know, what else can I do? So I've set up this thing where for every new project that I bring on, I will twin an office space with a beehive because, you know, we have this declining bee population in the UK and that's really bad for us as a planet. Um, It's obviously bad if you can't pollinate, eventually we'll have no food. So you really want the bee population to be strong. And um, yeah, so I'll I'll, I'll twin um, a company's office space. It could be anything. It could be their garden shed if they want, if they're working from home with a beehive. And what that does is the company that I do this with, it's um, an organic farm. They kind of sow more wildflowers and they they do more for the bees for for every kind of beehive that you twin with them. So, um, yeah, it's just a way of of doing something to the planet. And I'm also working with the Wildlife Trust, just my local one, helping them build up a funnel so they can win more members um, through the Internet online rather than obviously they can't do a lot of their face to face stuff at the moment. So they need those kind of online ways to win more members. So I'm doing that at a discounted rate for them. and yeah, I think we'll we'll end up doing some more work together. They're a, a really good organisation to work with, and they've got um, you know staff furloughed and stuff, so they they need kind of outside people to come in and help them. So yeah, that's been a, a fun and quite rewarding thing to do as well. I love that whole twinning bee uh, beehive. It's you know it's not just I'm gonna give, and not that there's anything wrong with this. Like I'm gonna give some money to plant a tree or whatever. Like there's such a wonderful visual. Like my office space is twinned with a beehive. Yeah, I like that. Uh, too. It's, uh, it's nice. Now, if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, what would that be? I think I'd love to go back and just tell myself to be a bit more ballsy and have a bit more confidence. <sighs> I think I kind of I messed about for too long. Not you know, not really pushing myself to do all the things that I do now partly that was a symptom of having young children and all the all the lack of sleep that goes with that but you know I see copywriters now kind of going from you know naught to amazingness in like a year or two and I think wow it's taken me quite a long time to get here um you know I wonder if I could have done it quicker if I'd done things a bit differently so and I think a lot of that 
comes down to not being confident enough. And, you know, what I found going on all these masterminds and things like that is that I was actually already a really good copywriter. I just maybe didn't know it. And working with kind of stellar copywriters like Joanna Weeb quickly showed me, oh, actually, I do know what I'm doing and I'm quite good at this. And I think if I'd known that a bit quicker, I could have got where I am now a bit quicker. So, yeah, I'd love to go back and give myself a bit of a confidence boost. I love it. Go to beingfreelance.com. As with all of our guests, there are links through so that you can uh, check out uh, Liz's work. You can find her on social and uh, reach out to her. And um, yeah, take a look at her website, for example, that we were talking about earlier on. And there'll be a transcript and there'll be links through to the organisations that she's spoken about. Actually, we'll put a link to Prana Malik's episode of Being Freelance because she was, oh God, it must be like 2018, maybe two and a half years ago, something like that, um, that we spoke. It's such a great story, really great episode, actually. So well worth listening to her story. Uh, we'll put a link to that or just search your app where you got this podcast from and you'll find it there. Also, if you're a freelance parent like myself and Liz, check out the Doing It For The Kids podcast that I do with Frankie from the Doing It For The Kids community, who, uh, by the way, I'm also, I like we co-mentor each other, which sort of ties into what Liz and I have been talking about, egging each other on. Uh, so yeah, if you fancy that, search for Doing It For The Kids. Otherwise, I'll see you in the Being Freelance community. You've joined that, right? Go to beingfreelance.com and click on the button. That's enough plugging of stuff. Uh, um, just suffice to say, Liz, it's been an absolute joy chatting to you. Thank you so much and all the best being freelance. Oh, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's been great. 